Hey guys, it is me, Known Wells, Noni Pants McGee. I don't wear pants. What am I saying? I'm Noni Shorts. Pants are tyrannical like prisons. That's a thing I like to say, because I don't like to wear pants. I like shorts. I'm not just wearing underwear while I record. I wear shorts. That's what not liking pants means. Anyhoozles, today's show, episode 16, is a Tony Time episode. Tony and I talk a bit about bipolar disorder. I also reveal some pretty strange and and bizarre dreams that I've had in the past, and Tony makes fun of me. No, he doesn't really make fun of me. It's just silly and fun, but um, yeah, dreams are weird. And we also talk about the romanticization of the crazy artist. Um, if you haven't listened to uh, episode 15 with Sarah Jickling, go back and do that. Uh, that'll provide a bit more context for this episode. The disclaimer for the show is that the Yumi Empathy podcast is for informational and or entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Oh, and the last thing is that... Um, if you're not following Yumi Empathy on Twitter and Instagram, please do that. I'm at Yumi you at Yumi Empathy. And if you if you want to chat or be on the show, I'm looking for new guests. Actually, uh, just shoot me an email at Yumi Empathy um, Yumi Empathy at gmail.com, or you can just you know message me on Twitter or Instagram at Yumi Empathy. And. Uh, Check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash Empathy. Patreon's a place where you can support the show uh, on an ongoing basis for as little as 25 cents per episode. And uh, in return, you get some uh, cool behind-the-scenes stuff, photos. Uh, there's some higher tiers where you can be a guest, all sorts of good stuff, lovely stuff. Anyways, enjoy this episode, episode 16 a Tony Time episode on bipolar disorder and weird dreams and the romanticization, romanticization, that's a hard word to say, of the crazy, crazy artist stereotype. Okay, enjoy. Bye. podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our neuroses, our mental illnesses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand-in-hand, break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being human. Yumi Empathy is a safe place, a conversation between friends, a place to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today's episode, we are 
I'm here again with my friend Tony Remike. Hello, Tony. Hey, known. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Good. So we are exploring bipolar disorder today. We are. We are. We are. We, so, we will attempt to, yes. We will, yes. So um, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, my chat with uh, Sarah, uh, go do that now. Pause this. Go back and listen to my chat with Sarah Jicklin on uh, bipolar disorder. It was... Sarah is just a delight and um, a really fascinating human and uh, had a lot of wonderful things to say about uh, bipolar disorder and the crazy artist stereotype and all these other interesting things. So go back, listen to that. But today we're talking about bipolar disorder. I'm going to ask Tony some questions about uh, his experience with um, uh, patients of his. But before we do that, as we always do, Tony is going to do his little spiel. I got a spiel for everybody. <laughs> so my name is Anthony Romike, legally known by the Board of Behavioral Sciences here in the state of California. Um, so I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, license number 47805. So again, I'm a licensed marriage family therapist here in the state of California. And I think that's everything I need to say. That's I think, it. I think yeah. that's my disclosure, right? Yeah. California, Sounds good. Board of Behavioral Sciences. Love it. I've got my license number. Yeah. You know what I do. And I'm in private practice. So I'm a private practice clinician. And uh, so my main focus, main job is seeing clients throughout the week. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's start with your experience as a therapist dealing with patients who have bipolar. What's your experience there? You know, two thoughts came into my mind uh, when you said that. And one is not a whole lot. I'm going to be completely open and honest with our listeners and you. And and although certainly having some experience, but and what's what even kind of maybe prompted me saying that and thinking that is it's a really difficult di diagnosis. It's a really actual mm. difficult thing to discern. And I think it's a... It's a diagnosis a lot of times that, that comes from a historical perspective that really requires kind of a deep historical um, exploration, unless the symptoms are just, sometimes they're just very glaring. Um, you know, sometimes in an interview in, you know, uh, or an assessment intake, you'll get a client who will, will share with you, you know, the very clear identifying uh, diagnostic criteria for a bipolar disorder, which may include, you know, the manic phase uh, followed with, you know, the very severe depression. And, and sometimes it's very clear. But I think, you know, even in these cases, you know, it's it's extremely important to have them, as we've talked before, evaluated by their medical physician to determine just in case there isn't anything else happening from a physiological uh, level. And then also uh, what I always like to do in this case or would like to do in this case would be to send them for a psychiatric evaluation as well. Okay. You know, going to be really, 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 really important that they see their psychiatrist, get that evaluation done as well, because that's going to be a really important part of the assessment phase is, again, having them looked at and examined um, by their psychiatrist or a psychiatrist. Okay. So, I mean, uh, so you don't have many patients or haven't had many patients who've had this uh, bipolar disorder, but what, what, let's just start maybe at the ground level. Yeah. What, what do you know about bipolar disorder? What, uh, what's your understanding of it? Um, and what are the, some, some of the maybe common treatments for it? You know, the, 
when you again just said that, what I thought about was not a client I've you know ever had. I'm actually reflecting back to a coworker that I had years and years and years ago before I ever you know entered into this field, and uh, like one of my first jobs out of college. And what I remember, I you know was working with this particular coworker, and he went into this rapid, rapid um, like thought process. His speech was so fast and so forced and somewhat tangential. I, I literally, it was just so shocking because normally this particular person was very easygoing, hmm. was um, very kind of, you know, slow in movement, slow in speech. And this was like a night and day difference. I mean, I, I literally thought I was sitting with another human being if I didn't recognize the person sitting right across from me. Um, and I remember just being so taken off guard. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. And, you know, some of the other people that we worked with, had, you know, we were obviously noticing it as well. And he just rapidly said, you know, I'd like to be able to go home early today. And, and he took off. And I think he took several days off after that, came back to work finally. And at that point explained what had happened was in the process of that day, he had switched into a manic phase and a manic mm -hmm. episode. And for him, this is one of the ways in which, you know, he displays his mania. And, you know, and he just had just grandiose thoughts and, you know, rapid speech, high energy. And, uh, you know, I was like, again, like nothing I'd ever seen before. So once he came back and was able to describe to us that he had bipolar disorder and he was being treated for it and he was actually, you know, uh, under a doctor's care. But um, there was something with medication. I can't remember exactly what it was, but this flared up and, you know, we kind of all got to see it. And I remember that was, you know, my first experience with, with a manic phase as it related to bipolar disorder. And it wouldn't be years later until I would see it clinically. Um, but that was, you know, the, the first taste of it that I, I ever had. Hmm. It was fascinating. It was completely yeah. fascinating. So correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. uh, bipolar disorder used to be referred to as manic depression. Right? Correct. Okay. Exactly. And that's, you know, obviously describing two states of being, one yep. the mania and one the low. So the highs and the lows. The highs right? and the lows, right. Yeah. And I think we even hear people, you know, in, in, in pop culture use the word bipolar, right? When they describe somebody who's like two different people at different times, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, you'll hear that just in conversation. You'll hear people say, you know, obviously not using it from a clinical perspective, but like, oh my gosh, that person is so bipolar. One day they're this, the next day they're that. You know, we hear that, you know, quite a bit in conversation. And, you know, bipolar disorder in its true clinical sense, you know, looks obviously we understand where people get that perspective because, you know, you do have, like you said, these severe highs and these severe lows. But obviously, it looks, you know, very different in a clinical presentation than the way we kind of think about it, I think, from a pop, uh, you know, culture type of perspective and the way we talk about it. But, yeah, traditionally, we're talking about a disorder that has, as you mentioned, a very high high and potentially very low lows. But, you know, actually, as the two of you had discussed, and I believe she had said that it was she had more hypomaniac uh, states. Hypomania. Yeah, so yeah, she had more yeah, of the yeah. hypo. Which means, you know, there's still that up, there's still that increase in mood, and, that, and but it's not quite as severe as a full-blown, you know, manic episode, which can be extremely severe. In fact, the diagnostic criteria actually suggests that this person, it's the severity of it will probably lead to hospitalization. So, they're, you know, wow. very, very high severity when it comes to somebody who has full-blown bipolar 1 disorder, we would call that, you know, full-blown bipolar 1. And again, bipolar, you know, one disorder is where 
the person who has had one of these manic e- episodes, they have it for a minimum of seven days. And again, it's extremely severe. And so, which potentially could lead to hospitalization. You might even hear somebody talk about a psychotic features as part of that experience. So, in addition to just, you know, the uh, potential agitation, racing thoughts, racing speech, and um, lack of sleep, you know, um, you know, or no sleep, um, grandiosity, you know, you might actually even have psychotic features where the person may lose touch with reality, which is generally what puts them into the hospital mm. setting is, is once they've lost touch with reality. And, but you could also have, you know, very destructive behaviors as well. One of the things that can come with mania is an increase in risk-taking behaviors. And so, you know, you obviously need containment around that potentially before the person could uh, harm themselves with some of their risk-taking. Hmm. So it's a, you know, so you have that on the one side with bipolar and then on the other side, you have the depressive features. And you, this is where, again, you would have on its own, you know, basically a major depressive episode and severe depression that could last potentially, you know, two weeks or longer. And again, you know, very severe, you know, you know, criteria met for the more severe forms of depression. And, you know, this is, you know, this is the kind of life that we're describing potentially for some people. And it's, it's really horrible. Well, in the way that Sarah was describing it is she was describing, and maybe, maybe this is out of the norm, but um, she had bipolar disorder diagnosed and anxiety disorders. Yeah. You know, and is that common where you have like it is. someone who has bipolar has, you know, sort of multiple things going yeah. on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that, are, that tends to be very comorbid with uh, bipolar disorder are the anxiety-based disorders as well. Okay. So not uncommon at all. Um, comorbid also potentially have ADHD, ADD. There's comorbidity uh, potentially with, with those um, as well. And it's not unexpected uh, or surprising to have a comorbid alcohol or substance abuse dependency, Mm. uh, which, again, I think is maybe a person's attempt at trying to regulate the highs and the lows. And, you know, so that's, you know, also something that you may tend to see comorbidly. So uh, in the workshop, actually, that I was doing yesterday and we were talking about sex addiction and, you know, one of the things is we were talking about what potentially might be comorbid, but also what type of rule out disorders What's are you co- looking at comorbid so comorbid is yeah what else might be there okay so for instance you know if somebody maybe one of the classic kind of examples of, of comorbid is if we think some of somebody who has maybe an alcohol or substance abuse disorder and they seek treatment more often than not you're going to find a comorbid or what we may call a pre-existing or a coexisting mental disorder or, or mental illness with that. So, for instance, the person might be medicating because they have anxiety, or they might be medicating because they have depression, or they could very well be medicating because they have bipolar uh, illness. They might be medicating, um, self-medicating ADHD, ADD. So, in treatment, if uh, particularly again looking at substance abuse or alcohol abuse or even sex addiction. Once you get somebody sober, you know, basically you, you've taken away that uh, particular form of coping that they're using. One of the things that you're now going to look for is what might be comorbid. So what what is it the person might have been using? <laughs> I don't know if you that? hear that, guys. Should we but explain that? Scooby's sneezing like a maniac. I have Scooby sitting next to me and he had a little sneeze attack. Are you <laughs> feeling better, Scoob? He looks like he's doing better. Yes. So uh, he's looking at me with these sweet little Scooby, eyes. You're comorbid. You're 
you are just cool is what you are, actually. You're like our mascot. Oh, Scoobs. Scoobs is the best. He is the best. So, so once you get somebody sober and you get them stable, stabilized, what you're now going to look for is, is what may have been underneath that behavior. What might be what we would say is comorbid, you know, so what might be something else that they, um, they actually have as an underlying mental, mental health illness. So what I'm hearing you say is that, uh, bipolar disorder is hard, is a hard illness to diagnose it is because it requires you said historical yeah context? because you know and it, it varies from person to person in terms of how often the person experiences these symptoms okay so for instance you know i've done a clinical interview uh, an assessment with somebody and it's presenting more which is fairly common is is more often than not when if you see somebody clinically they're probably going to present with a depression it's very rare that you're going to have somebody who's going to present with mania because um more often than not the distress really comes in the depressed phase of of the cycle and why is that well i think you know from what i've heard from people before is that when they're in the mania uh, you know in a main manic phase or experiencing mania uh, it can be somewhat enjoyable. Yeah. You know, that, that experience. Yeah, getting stuff done. They're getting stuff done. I mean, they're, yeah. they're hyperproductive. Yeah. They enjoy the feeling. You know, some of some people have described it as very euphoric. Uh-huh. You know, that there's just a very euphoric type of feeling that comes with it. They feel, you know, this is the, the tortured artist stereotype that we were, you know, that you two referenced. You know, there is a burst of creativity. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, heard, heard people report high burst of creativity. This is... Um, you know, where, where maybe you've heard artists talk about how, you know, prolific they are, you know, right. in, a, in, a man, in a manic phase. They can write tons of songs. They can write, you know, tons of literature. They can, you know, produce tons of, you know, concepts and ideas for a screenplay. There's a lot of different ways, you know, or a lot of different creative ways that somebody can, you know, use, uh, you know, their, their mania, so to speak, as a, as a creative outlet. And again, be highly prolific and very productive. So... They're usually not coming in because of the distress of that, and they're usually going to come in because of the distress of the depression. Because yeah. again, the, the suppression, the depression potentially being severe enough that it's creating, you know, suicidal ideation. It's potentially creating, um, you know, severe uh, problems in functioning, occupational, personal functioning, and so forth. Um, just you know, depressed mood, right? You know, just just very, very, very low affect. People would say, "I'm just so down. I can't get out of this. I just want to stay in bed. I just want to sleep all the time. I'm not eating. I'm not sleeping well. I have suicidal ideation." And generally, that's when someone's going to seek treatment is usually right. in those. And again, if they've had a manic phase where it was severe enough for hospitalization, you know, they at that point, like I said, that's fairly. That makes the diagnosis a little easier to make um, when there's uh, when you have somebody in a manic phase, or they can come in and report that they know they've been manic. And and but a lot of people, particularly if they've had hypomania, you know, as again as Sarah was reporting, that's not as easy to identify. Uh, or sometimes people just never thought of it as that. They just thought they went through a period of just great creativity. And I think Sarah had even said, you know, like, oh, we're we're musicians. We're nineteen. You know, right, like right. we're all doing this, you know, it's referenced in Arcade Fire's, you know, one of their songs, like this is just a lifestyle. Right. So it's, you know, people may not attribute it to the, you know, the actual, or you know, just, they're just not educated to understand what this actually is or what this potentially looks like, especially again with hypomania, where it's not as severe, you know, you're not having the severe features of, of a full-blown uh, man- manic episode. 
Mm-hmm. How common are nightmares with people with bipolar? I have no idea. Okay. I, I have absolutely I was curious. no idea. Sarah had mentioned yeah, that, that she has had nightmares yeah. her entire life, still does. Yeah. Uh, like she said, every night when I was yeah. sort of floored by. Oh, yeah. And I, I can't imagine uh, living like that. No, I can't. I, you know, I can't either. I can't. I mean, talk about disruptive and yeah. yeah. I mean, and just, yeah. I know if I have one bad, you know, dream in, in a, you know, in a week's time or whatever, I know it can stay with me, you know, throughout the, re- you know, the next day and right. kind of really hit me emotionally. So, yeah. But yeah, but I've not heard of that okay. personally. And uh, so I, you know, I unfortunately can't speak to it, nor have I read about that, you know, in, in anything clinically referencing bipolar disorder, but it certainly wouldn't be surprising. I mean, just thinking about the brain and thinking about the misfiring and, you know, and, and the things that may be happening that, you know, that could certainly be a part of that process. Do you talk, this may be a little bit of a tangent, but yeah. do you talk to your patients about nightmares and dreams? And yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoy that that, um, you know, what's the word exploration uh-huh. of that for them. I, I very much love, you know, uh, you know, exploring and talking about and processing somebody's dreams. For me, that's gives so much interesting information about what they might be working through, you know, in, in the night. And, uh, you know, I remember, you know, as an undergrad in psychology and, you know, reading about Freud and dream analysis and, young symbolism and everything, you know, I always found that to, to be an extremely fascinating, you know, kind of projective way of understanding what's happening in some, in somebody. And as I've worked with, you know, people clinically over all these years and people have come in and reported, I think because they know you're a therapist, they feel like they have to tell you their dreams, like, mm. you know, it's <laughs> yeah. just almost kind of expected. Yeah. Um, but usually it's fascinating, you know, to, to sit with them and kind of explore the themes of either their nightmares or their dreams and to even get some insight, I think, into what's happening for them relationally, uh, you know, intrapsychically, interpersonally as they sit with you. And more often than not, I, you know, again, there's, there's a lot of good information, I feel like, that, you know, that they get a lot of insight that they get in terms of how they might be feeling about something that they maybe haven't been fully aware of or something maybe they're repressing. And, and you know, I'm not talking like memories or anything, but just maybe not in touch with or uh the recognition that something may be a larger stressor than they've been aware of and it's coming out in their sleep and it's coming out in their dreams. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think our brain you know, does quite a bit of work, you know, in the night as we're processing that information. And I've also heard about some reconsolidation that's happening, you know, in the brain when we sleep and, and maybe that's part of that process, you know, in the way in which the brain is storing memory. So, mm. yeah, but it's very, yeah, I love it. It's very fascinating. It is fascinating. I don't often remember my dreams, but when I do, they are memorable. Do you tend to dream more abstract or you... I don't know. Last night, so this is a perfect example. Last night I had what I would call a nightmare. Wow. And I hadn't, I haven't had really had one like that in yeah. a long time, but essentially it was a, a series of horror really? film settings, essentially. And I was... Like from movies you've seen? Maybe. Okay. I don't know. They weren't right. that uh, recognizable, but they they were, in my mind, sort of trope scenes oh. from a lot of different horror movies I've right. seen, probably. Like, was Jason chasing you? No, no. I don't remember any specific characters. No. I don't Jigsaw remember was any... telling you to go through this <laughs> I don't remember room. any characters, really. Okay. It was just, I, I was in it, in it, and I was, I felt like a victim. Okay. 
And, and then I woke up and couldn't fall back asleep for like an hour because I was sort wow. of distraught. Yeah. Wow. I know. That sounds really intense. It was intense. Did you, how did you wake up feeling? I felt um, uncomfortable. Yeah. And I felt, you know, I felt a little bit betrayed, <laughs> you know, because I watch these types of movies sure. and I love them. And, right. Um, so in that way, I felt a little bit betrayed, but yeah, it was just uncomfortable. It felt weird. Right. Yeah. It felt like weird. betrayed by a genre that you love? Yeah, yes. exactly. Right. Yeah. Like that. So yeah, it was weird. But, um, yeah, I, uh, but it's rare that I do remember okay. my, my dreams. Yeah. Do you ever have just that straightforward dream where you're like, oh my goodness, that just was as plain as day. Yeah. There are dreams I still remember to this day that, um, one of them, I had woken up crying. I was, I was this may make sense to you because right. you're getting to know me, Tony, but I was driving with my mom yeah. and we were, for some reason, we were in a semi truck. Okay. She was driving, I was sitting shotgun and we were fighting, yeah. like, uh, like verbally fighting. Right. And, um, how old were you in the dream? Like how old do you remember? I was, um, I think I, uh, was a teenager. Okay. I think I was a teenager and I said, stop, you know, stop the truck. And she stopped and I, um, I got out and just like started walking alongside the, the road. Right. And she kept going and then she had stopped and then came back and then we like hugged. Wow. Okay. And I woke up crying. Wow. I know. Do you remember what the tears were about for you? What, I mean, was that the fact that you guys reconciled or do you remember? I don't, or just... um, probably, maybe. Um, I just remember being uh, like crying as I was walking down the side of the highway. Yeah. And um, being upset by the conversation that we had. Sure. And wanting to express to her that I was upset about the conversation. Wow. But obviously uh, wanting to connect with her again as well. Right. You yeah. Know? So right. there's all yeah, sorts it's got of different themes, emotions. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. We don't have to look. Real <laughs> that deep. makes sense. Yeah, I mean, for my life. So. Right. Right. Um, and then there was this other dream. We're totally tangential on this point, but that's okay. Right. Um, I woke up cr uh, laughing. Yeah. Okay. I woke up my I wo I was laughing in the dream and I woke myself up by because I was laughing so hard. Right. It was this just this one image where I was myself in my dream and okay. I looked down and I felt some sort of weird presence right. in my thigh area. Okay. <laughs> I looked down, pulled down my pants, and there is a. Actually, I'm confusing two dreams. This is one dream where I didn't. I just woke up very disturbed. Gotcha. There was another dream where I was laughing. I'll tell you about it in a sec. <laughs> I woke woke up and there was like this brain, sort of amorphous brain, sort of maggot, like sucking my inner thigh. Holy smokes. Whoa. <laughs> and yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then the one that I woke up laughing was I, you know, I basically was a character and I had uh you know, perfectly square testicles. I woke up laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That is awesome. That is awesome. One more thing. Oh, yeah, one oh, more thing. You can just keep going. So, so when I was a kid, um, I would pretty much every night or every other night, I would have dreams that were pretty, like I would forget pretty quickly. Yeah. 
but there was always this character in them and it was like this little devil character wow and it was almost like seemed to be like a a foot tall foot and a half tall devil character that just sort of hovered in my general area (laughs) whoa isn't that weird yes and like the kind of little devils we think of pitchfork little red suit yeah exactly exactly wow strange was he telling you to do things? You know, like no, devil on my no, shoulder, angel no, on my shoulder. No, he was just he was just kind of sitting there watching me. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and you've had that dream repeatedly. Yeah, I hadn't. I haven't in ages. You know, right. not since I was uh, probably a teenager. But, okay. Yeah. Wow. But for countless, countless times. Yeah. So I mean, in your dream, whatever it is you're doing, uh, going about doing, he's just somehow just in the background, staying there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, my guess is, you know, retrospectively, right. retro, yeah, retrospectively, looking back on it, I'm thinking, okay, well, I had um, a pretty sort of harsh reality when it came to religion, you know, in terms of like how my father sort of positioned it to right. us. And I grew up in a Christian household and, and um, you know, that was that was what was expected of us. And, and so there may be... I was expressing some sort of anxiety about that. Yeah, and, right. You know, who knows? Sure. Who knows? But, I know, did you have kind of a fire and brimstone teaching? Yeah, I mean, was that? Well, I mean, my dad used to yell, what would Jesus do at us? Okay. Yell. Okay. Like he would like, and I was always like, uh, well, not, that not yell. That sounds like kind of like an oxymoron. I know, right? I know, so. I know. It, it always was. But um, yeah, it wasn't fire and brimstone because we went to, but the way that my father um, because I ultimately, I think he was dealing with just a ton of guilt all the time, yeah. you know, for all his infidelity and stuff. Sure. Um, he took it super seriously and then, you know, required us to like wear nice clothes to church and like, was yeah. always like worried about how we appeared presentation, to, presentation yeah. you know, all that right. stuff. So yeah. I think, um, I got that anxiety from him and yeah. know, I'd felt, you know, a little fire and brimstone from him. Right, right. Not from my mom. Sure. But, um, yeah. So. Yeah, that is fascinating. Anyways, yeah. that was a wow. dream tangent. Wow. <laughs> of uh, square testicles and devils. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I mean, hey, yeah, I got all kinds of visual things going here. <laughs> you so. see why I started this yeah, show? Yeah, I know. Well, you know, hey. <laughs> um. Know. I want to talk about uh, the crazy artist stereotype. Yes. And that one of the things, like, Sarah's an amazing musician. Yeah. Um, if you guys haven't listened to her stuff, go out and do it. Um, Sarah's Good Bad Luck is her band, and she's really talented. Yeah, you, you and Jess played her for me. I was so impressed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um, she was talking about how, like, her behavior in her mania and her as she was experienced before she was diagnosed was confirmed, right? Like that behavior was like to her peers in some respects, like within the industry, like the music uh, artist fear was um, applauded. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. Is that something you've experienced? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, You know, not necessarily, you know, again, directly, you know, clinically in a lot of settings, but, but more so, maybe more just kind of abstractly with regards to, you know, exploring on my own this particular disorder and, you know, us being in Orange County, kind of near LA, you know, obviously a, you know, creative capital, yeah. one of the creative capitals. 
and you know Hollywood and and you know and, and all the music that is generated out of here. You know, I've I've just heard artists talk about that. You know, basically the whole concept of living without your feet touching the ground is what life is about for an artist. It's not about being grounded in reality, right? It's it's you know it's it's a life with again you know you're kind of head in the clouds and your feet not on the ground, and whether that's because of alcohol and substance use and abuse, or whether that's other you know other things, or whether it's you know a manic type of experience. But yeah, there's I think there's a lot of you know encouragement that comes with being you know hyper creative, right? You know, and, and again hyper prolific. One of the uh, I, one of my favorite documentaries on this particular topic and subject is one that was actually done on the the musical artist Adam Ant. Remember Adam Ant, Adam and the Ants. I do, I do so remember. This is, this is an '80s reference, but um, Adam is still tur- touring, and, uh, and I think has through the '90s and, and you know 2000s and onwards. And he's had a very public. What was the doc called? So the the document is actually called, I believe it's the Madness. Of Adam Ant. Let's okay. see. I'm trying to remember. I think I wrote it down. Uh, the Madness of Adam Ant. Okay, great. Is the documentary. And phenomenal documentary on this. And again, this exact topic. And from what I kind of recall from watching this, when, when he talks about, you know, his early years, because the diagnosis itself, you know, you usually start to see the symptomology in, you know, late teens and early adult is, is kind of when you tend to see the onset of this particular illness. So not uncommon to go through a, a manic phase at that age. And you may honestly go years before you ever have another one. You may have some people, again, who, who have large breaks between ever having another manic episode. Uh, or you may have somebody who cycles very quickly and, and may, maybe have several within a year. But what I recall from Adam talking about, you know, his experience was, you know, he grew up, he was an art student. And he obviously fell into the late 70s, you know, music world in England, which was really just kind of on fire at that point. You had the punk, you know, kind of genre that was was really gaining a lot of uh, movement. You had New Wave and, and, and kind of those different types of musical genres. But you had the Sex Pistols, you know, he had, you know, Adam and the Ants, you had um, The Clash, Bow Wow Wow, you know, all these, all these uh, you know, bands that were you know, coming into favor. You had Malcolm McLaren, who was a big part of that that world and, and creating all these, you know, just amazing um, musical artists. And so he talks about, you know, that time in life and that time in history in which his mania fits so well of that period of time because it was a crazy time of dress. I mean, you could be flamboyant and just crazy in your dress and in terms of that creative form of expression. Uh, the more prolific you were in your music writings, that helps the record labels, right? Because The get more to, validation. The yeah, more, more validation, praise, the more praise. More money. You know, and the fact that he could be a workaholic, essentially, you know, the fact that he could go weeks without sleep and, and just – and be so productive during, during uh, that, you know, period in his life – was also just, you know, creating this momentum in his art, right? And creating this momentum in his visibility as an artist. And, you know, so he could tour, he could create, he could be, you know, um, recreate himself, you know, in terms of, of an artist, you know, many times over. And, you know, I think, I think, and he even talks about his kind of sexual history in, in this as well as being, you know, um, very, I don't know what the word would be, prolific as well. <laughs> um you know, and, and again, you know, we all now know that these are the, the features of, of, you know, bipolar disorder and specifically a manic episode. And, 
but later, you know, he had, he, you know, really experienced the downside of this. And, you know, again, the documentary talks about the periods in his life in which the depression has been so severe that, you know, he has, you know, I think he's been institutionalized at probably a minimum a couple times. I think he reported uh, for fairly extended, you know, periods of time because the, the depression was just so severe mm. um, where you just – it's so overwhelming. You just, you just don't want to live anymore. You know, you just, you just can't uh, live with the pain. So it's a, it's a fascinating documentary, you know, and again, specifically, I think from an artist's perspective on what it's like to have this particular disorder. What are the, um, so obviously it's so challenging because, you know, putting myself in the shoes of an artist, I'm creating, I'm getting all this validation. I'm sick. Right. I have the disorder, but right. I'm also creating, I'm getting all this validation. What are the, or maybe I'm answering my own question, sure. the things that get them to go seek therapy or go seek um, psychiatry or, or right. go get medicated, you know? Yeah. Uh, the, are those the depressive episodes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you, had, you already mentioned that. Yeah, no, but I mean, great to reiterate yeah. it. It's, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's the depressive side. It's the downside, if we, you know, if you will, um, that will get somebody to be able to say, yeah, I, you know, I, I can't do this. You know, this can't go on, you know, because, again, the depression is just so impairing, you know, and just so psychologically and emotionally distressing. And so impairing that, you know, I, I think that speaks to actually how horrible that that experience must be. That, to your point, yeah, I'm willing to give up this manic, fa you know, hypomanic, manic, you know, phase in which, yeah, maybe I feel euphoric. Maybe I feel um, creative and productive, but I, I can't live with this side. I mean, there's there's absolutely right. no way. I mean, it's So, just, it's really it's only me. the other side, the depression side that is you know, because I'm ignorant of bipolar disorder, really, right. and um, the way you're describing the manic side, it sounds, I mean, it sounds intense, but it also sounds right. amazing. So, you know, right. it, I mean, it makes, I guess it makes sense that, that those, the other side of the coin, the depression yeah. side would be the, the thing that would inspire people to get help. Yeah, and again, you know, we can't speak for everybody. Right. You know, I think everybody has probably such a un somewhat unique experience with this, you know, this particular disorder. Um, I mean, there very well could be people out there who can't stand their their mania or their manic phases because of the of maybe how severe it gets, maybe mm. because of the psychotic features that can actually come oh, okay, with yeah. severe mania, the hospitalizations. So, you know, I mean, you know, we certainly have it's not all awesome and wonderful. Right. And, you know, and a lot of people end up creating very horrible financial problems, you know, as a result of, of just high risk, intense, you know, intensity uh, related to spending. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I've heard about people maxing out, a, you know, a credit card, you know, on one of these week long, you know, manic phases, you know, so all of a sudden you can put yourself in tremendous debt. You could, you can act out sexually and you can go through a period of time where you're acting out sexually with many partners and you could potentially put yourself in a horrible position there. Of, you know, let's say at minimum, you know, a sexually transmitted disease. Right. You know, so there or you know, even risk of, you know, being, gosh, you know, who knows what, you know, someone could do to take advantage of somebody in that position. Uh, so, you know, there there are really some very, very 
potentially negative consequences for somebody, you know, being in a manic phase as well. But again, more often than not, yeah, it's that other side of the coin though that you talked about, just the heavy depression, the, you know, suicidal ideation, the despair, the hopelessness, and the impairment in functioning ultimately, you know, just the impairment in being able to function, you know, um, not wanting to get out of your bed, not eating, still not able to sleep well. And, um, you know, and again, these are the generally what we'll see someone present with if, if they're just on that side. And again, like I said, some people, if there's been years in between a manic phase and their depressive uh, experiences, they may not even necessarily recall that that's what they had. Mm-hmm. So, so they may, may not even tell you about it, even, even through a fairly thorough uh, intake or assessment, it may come out later at some point. So, hmm. so you, you had mentioned that you don't, you haven't had any patients with bipolar disorder. No, you know, it's gosh, I, I'm sure I have had over the years, but for me personally, it's been very rare. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Been, it's been a fairly rare thing. Is it a, but it's not fairly rare in the population necessarily. Okay. Um, Gosh, I can't remember the statistic. I think it was 2.6%, if I remember from the National Institute of Mental Health. Okay. Um, please, you know, don't quote me on that. But if if my memory serves, I think it might be somewhere around like 2.6%, I think, of the population might potentially have bipolar disorder. Um, you know, how many seek treatment? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure on what the statistics are in terms of people who will actually seek treatment for. Um, or, you know, again, if it's not initially diagnosed or identified. So mm-hmm. it may, you know, again, if, if you maybe potentially are, again, are working with somebody and historically, again, they're just not familiar that or remember that they've had a manic episode. So I, but, you know, there's a couple of clients who are coming to mind that I remember that in their presentation, you know, in their assessments and intakes could recall a period, you know, as, as we talked about it, you know, where they would have a period of, of potentially hypomania, again, less than seven days or a true manic episode that lasted longer than seven days. That's part of the criteria where, you know, we were able to, to connect those dots and, mm-hmm. and be able to say like, yeah, you know, that, that would certainly fit within a hypomanic or full blown manic type of phase. And so it happens. Um, but I think it, it might somewhat be underreported if it's been years since people are, or were even aware that they ever had it is right. really what I mean. So, yeah. So what are, what are some other things about bipolar disorder that maybe the listeners should be aware of or yeah. symptoms? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in terms of symptoms, maybe we've covered most of them as, as it kind of relates to, to a manic phase and, you know, and again, what you'd be looking for are, you know, sleep problems, risky behaviors, you know, I've, I've talked about, you know, just risky spending, you know, overspending, impulsive, very impulsive, impulsive spending, impulsive sexual experiences, you know, and again, things that would be out of character for somebody, right? right. You know, I mean, somebody that would just, this would be, you know, very uncharacteristic thing. I think Sarah was talking about that it was her friends that were kind of pointing out, like, you know, you got to get some help. Like, right, we're not... Right. You know, so a lot of times, yeah, it's the people around you who are identifying and seeing the differences. You may not be seeing them. Uh, grandiosity, you know, just a flood of brilliant ideas, you know, and um, and multiple ideas maybe at the same time. Um, so rapid thoughts, as I mentioned, rapid speech, irritability, um, high activity, you know, again, just being super productive like we've talked about, feeling up, you know, just, just feeling that high energy, feeling very up. But again, lack of sleep. High productivity, um, racing thoughts, racing speech, impulsive spending or risky spending. These are kind of the the cornerstone symptoms okay. when we think of mania. Um, and again, some of these may be hypomanic, meaning they're not as severe. They last fewer days. 
and they may not have the psychotic features, but at its worst, mania will have psychotic features. Uh, you will actually have a detachment from reality. Now, sometimes in diagnosing, that can be tricky in clinical settings, trying to determine and separate it out between what might be schizophrenia, mm. you know, which the cornerstone to that is psychosis um, versus somebody who might be manic depressant or bipolar. Um, and again, that's why a psychiatrist has to has to be involved in that process for assessment and intake. So right. also for the fact that, you know, these are disorders that are going to require more than likely are absolutely going to require some kind of, you know, psychopharmological intervention and probably, you know, a lifetime management, you know, potentially of medication for these types of um, mental illness, mm-hmm. you know, these particular mental health disorders. And so, you know, you're probably looking at mood stabilizers. You're probably looking at antidepressants and, um, you know, as, as kind of the cornerstone, you know, psychopharmological uh, interventions. Um, I'm trying to think if there's atypical uh, antipsychotics, maybe. Um, but again, you're really going to need a psychiatrist, you know, yeah. to, to work with uh, yeah. if you're, you know, treating somebody with these types of disorders. And, and more than likely, they're probably also seeing a psychologist um, who's also trained in working with these people. Um, you know, it, so, but generally it's a combination of medications and uh, psychotherapy, you know, in terms of what the treatment options are. Most of the treatment options as far as psychotherapy, it's, it's still very much uh, cognitive behavioral therapy that, you know, people, uh, therapists will tend to use with this particular population. Um, family-focused therapy, interpersonal therapy, um, a lot of psychoeducation, you know, and maybe coaching, um, you know, health coaching for people as well to just kind of help them navigate this process. Because again, these, these tend to be lifelong disorders. Right. Um, so, you know, kind of learning management skills, you know, and how best to live with this particular disorder. So a lot of psychoeducation, I think, is, you know, super, super uh, important. And I think, you know, so, I mean, I think those are, you know, kind of really the, the big, okay. you know, treatment type of based issues uh, for this, you know, this specific disorder. So, so I, you know, thinking about that, I mean, you know, again, like we always do is, you know, if, if any of this sounds familiar, you know, or, you know, you have somebody in your family, I mean, you know, obviously we're always encouraging people to go seek treatment and get help and, you know, get assessed because, you know, this, again, this, this is a very, very severe uh, disorder with potentially very uh, negative consequences. And I don't know exactly what the rates are, but I know I have heard before that, you know, the suicide rates for this particular disorder in itself tend to be very high, Mm -hmm. you know, because of the severity of this. So, so again, if based around this issue or any issue, if, if there's any form of suicidal ideation that's occurring for you or anybody you know, um, we certainly, you know, would like you to reach out and get help. Um, we have the National Suicide Hotline, which is an 800 number, 1-800-273-8255. Uh, once again, 1-800-273-8255. So that's always hopefully important. Great. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So. Well, thanks for sharing. Oh, yeah. Hey. I got. Uh, I learned a little bit more. Well, you know, I learned a little bit more too. <laughs> you learned more. Uh, thigh, thigh, the thigh brain, thigh brains, monster, and... square testicles, and a one foot devil. Oh goodness! I may not sleep tonight. <laughs> well, um, thanks again for being here, Tony. Yeah, no, always my pleasure. And are we, we still stuck on Tony time? Did anybody ever come up with anything different? Or we, <laughs> no, I mean, we, we had the known and tone show. Yeah, we had the known and tone show. Yeah, I mean, I'm fine with Tony time. All right. So, uh, listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Uh, definitely 
follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Yumi Empathy. Um, we also have a Facebook community where you can go and just chat and share your story if you want to. That's at facebook.com slash groups slash Yumi Empathy. All these links will be in the show notes as well. And we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Yumi Empathy. That's a way you can support the show on an ongoing basis and you get some behind the scenes photos and bonus content and some other goodies. So check that out, patreon.com slash Yumi Empathy. And uh, I will say thank you again to Tony for being here. My, yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. And to you listeners, I'm here. You're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Oh.